It's September 6, 2023. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is one of those days where I don't think we're going to get to all of the good stuff. So joining me on the podcast, our good friend, Adam Kinzinger, former congressman from Illinois, founder of Country First, also now a political commentator for CNN and a crucial member of the January 6th committee. Good morning, Adam. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm I'm glad we have so much good stuff to get to. I mean, it's. Not, well, I heard you saying the other day, like, what happened to August? Like, you yeah. know, August used to be Just boring. It past. Now we're in September, so it's like August on steroids. I have here on my list. I want to talk about Tommy Tuberville. I want to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene holding Kevin McCarthy hostage. You know, I want to talk about Peter Navarro. I want to talk about Jack Smith. I want to talk about. There's just so much stuff to talk about. So. All right, let's just start with this. Um, the big news <laughs> of the last 24 hours, the Proud Boys sentencing. Enrique Tarrio, who was one of the leaders of the Proud Boys, received the longest sentence yet of any January 6th defendant. He got 22 years. So talk to me about that, your reaction, because, you know, it, it's taken a very, very long time. But these are the big sentences now. And, of course, Enrique Tarrio and people like Joe Biggs were convicted of seditious conspiracy. Let's just underline this, seditious conspiracy. So 22 years for Enrique Tarrio. This is, it's the right thing. There has been this, I don't know, this sense that has crept into, I don't know if it's been, if you want to call it Republican politics, conservative politics. Since I've been elected, there's always this kind of undertone of, oh, we're all hoarding our weapons because someday there's going to be a civil war. I mean, you heard people talk about that all the time. And, you know, and yeah. uh, we're there's going to be a day we need to overthrow the government. And we all took it kind of lightly, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, well, you know, of course, whatever they think. But that day came. And these people, particularly uh, like some of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, they actually coordinated, they pre-planned, you know, they had weapons outside of Washington, D.C. to bring in when Donald Trump declared the uh, Insurrection Act. And so, you know, if you have somebody that just kind of, I don't want to say inadvertently because it takes away responsibility, somebody that crossed the line kind of in the heat of the passion, you know, they deserve prison time. They deserve what they get. But somebody that spent days planning this, and sparking it certainly deserves what he got. And I, I frankly, I hope he doesn't get out early. And all you have to do is see what his supporters and people like him are out there saying, which is, you know, this is the government shutting us down. There's no remorse. And if there is remorse, it's usually just in a court filing because it's used to try to win some kind of concession from the judge. So look, I don't know if it was Ben Wittes and you guys were talking about this, which is it is using the law and putting people in jail is what's going to prevent the next thing from happening. He disagreed with me on something. I don't hold that against him. But, you know, it's it's truly going to be the thing that keeps people is to know that jail is real. You said the other day on CNN, we have laws. We have to protect democracy. It's the hardest form of government. I used to think it was the easiest. It's actually the hardest because you have to have trust. You have to have law. You have to enforce that law. There is no democracy if you do not enforce the rule of law. There can't be. As kids, we always, you know, democracy was kind of ingrained in us from before you were even really conscious. And you knew that, you know, the government was formed by you going to the ballot box. And, you know, sometimes dad was mad because his party lost. Sometimes he was happy because his party won. And, you know, you went on and sometimes you went to war. Sometimes you had peace, but it was all, you all felt like you had a stake in that to some extent. And, and so you, when you grow up believing that, and this is really a recent 
I don't know, maybe within six months, maybe a year, but like a recent understanding I've gotten, which is like when you grow up with that, you think it's easy until you realize it can be easy if you can guarantee one thing, a basic level of trust. If you can guarantee that your vote counts, you can vote and the person with the most vote wins and that if, you know, the rule of law is violated, there'll be consequences If you can guarantee all that, yeah, it's actually a fairly easy form of government. But what I've come to realize is that's actually the most difficult part about governing. Because you said this yesterday. I don't mean to keep quoting you, but you inspired me yesterday when you said something about like, you know, when you cross that red line once, like it is hard to ever go back. When you denigrate the rule of law, it's hard to ever go back and hold it sacrosanct. No, and I think that's one of the lessons we're learning here. So let's talk about the Proud Boys a little bit because they, they feel like they're central to this story. You know, I know that when, when the Proud Boy leaders, when Joe Biggs and Ontario were convicted, you, you said that Donald Trump lit the flame for January 6th and the Proud Boys were the flame. And of course, everybody has to remember that back in September 2020, it was Donald Trump who prompted the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. And if there was any ambiguity about that, Tario texted, you know, on parlor, standing by, sir, and mobilized, you know, all of these protesters. So it goes back to that moment when he was specifically asked about the Proud Boys, and he said, stand back and stand by. And they took that as a signal. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. Shortly after that, I was in Vegas for a military trip. Actually, we were doing a, I fly counter drug and we were there for <laughs> there's drugs in Vegas, believe it or not. And, uh, no, but I, I know I saw somebody with a shirt that said standing back and standing by. Obviously this person considered themselves a proud boy. They're sitting there in the casino. And oh. I was just like, wow, that's uh, yeah, that's a, that's a little weird. And so Donald Trump knew what he was doing. He knew that like there was this kind of fire. I, here's an example. Like there's this, I use it in my upcoming book. There's this fire that's burning in, I think it's Pennsylvania. There's like a mine that caught fire 60 years ago that's still on fire. And every now and then somebody punches a hole and it pops out. So it's like on the politics, it's that. There's this underburning fire. Mm-hmm. And when Trump says something like, stand back and stand by, the, he's basically punching a hole and allowing that to explode. But the fire still mm. burns. And so- you know, yes, they are very responsible. Donald Trump lit the fire and set it and basically convinced these folks. I mean, all you have to do is look through some of the text, convince these folks that he knew what they were doing. He was on their side and they were basically fighting this mission for holiness. And uh, everybody bears responsibility on that. I want to say one quick thing too about like whether it's the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys or whatever. They prey on men that feel disconnected. And I can understand this, like, because I, I fought with these, like when I got back from Iraq and, you know, you're kind of sitting there, you know, I was fortunate to be able to transition that into a run for Congress and kind of have a purpose, have a goal. Mm-hmm. But if I wouldn't have had that, if I just came back and the government pat me on the head and said, here's a check the rest of your life, now go fishing. I'm sitting around f- looking for a purpose. And what the Oath Keepers do, and, and they did this to me, by the way, they tried to recruit me before I even knew what they were before I, like, as I was running really? for Congress. Yeah. Somebody came and said, hmm. Hey, uh, you know, we were in this group, the oath keepers, you know, you made an oath to the constitution. And back then they weren't, they, you know, nobody knew what they were. And thankfully I didn't join the oath keepers, but you know, I understood what they were trying to do, which is take somebody that feels disaffected and give them a mission. And that's a very dangerous place. And that's a bigger discussion, by the way, for this country is how to give veterans not just a paycheck and not just healthcare, but a purpose. 
that's a much broader discussion, but that is what these groups are preying on that, that disconnected sense, frankly, of men, uh, you know, of a certain age. Okay, this raises a very interesting question because I was I was going to ask you about you know the, I mean it's very clear there's no remorse whatsoever as you pointed out uh, we know Dominic Pizzola who is you know weeping in front of the judge you know begging for mercy as he as he walks out after getting a ten year sentence shouts Trump won right. uh, these guys are not sorry for what they did right. I guess the question is the whole point of the prosecution and these long sentences is deterrence is to say don't ever try this again don't think about it again. But is this really going to put an end to this sort of appeal? Or if it really is this phenomenon of disconnected men and they're constantly being fed this constant diet of revisionist history in 1776, et cetera, will it have that effect? I mean, will groups like the Proud Boy shrivel up and die or are they going to actually grow in this current environment? What do you think? It's an interesting question, and my prediction is I think they do shrivel up, and whether they die or whether they just shrivel up, you know, I don't know. Look back in the 1920s, there was the, you know, frankly, in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, our stomping grounds, mm-hmm. there was the rise of the Ku Klux Klan yeah. to the point where they I think they had a couple. Yeah, they were huge. It's interesting. So in my district in Princeton, Illinois, they were doing a renovation on a theater and they found and showed me like a ticket to the Ku Klux Klan rally from 1920 or whatever. I'm like right there in Princeton, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so that had grown to a million or two million people. And then eventually the head of the Ku Klux Klan gets arrested for basically child rape. He yeah. raped a 16-year-old girl and that killed the Ku Klux Klan. And I think something similar is going to happen here, whereas these leaders are going away. That's some institutional knowledge. They're not winning Right. When your leaders go to jail, you're not winning, at least in the short term. So I think it's damaging. That said, I don't think that means that this kind of strain is gone. It may just metastasize into something different. But I, I do think like Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, their best the best thing they had going for them was anonymity and they've lost that. Let's talk about some of the reaction to all of this. So Enrique Tarrio gets 22 years. Joe Biggs, one of the other leaders of the Proud Boys, got 17 years. He is completely not remorseful, (laughs) as you know. He calls in to Alex Jones's show, you know, the Uber conspiracy. There's apparently Joe Biggs used to work for InfoWars and says that, uh, yeah, he's kind of counting on Donald Trump to pardon him. This is the jailhouse call from Joe Biggs to Alex Jones. Oh, I know he'll pardon us. I believe that with all my heart. You know, the the thing is, is hopefully getting him, uh, you know, for him to be able to get into the position where he can at least be, I think, on the ballot to run, right? You have one minute. (laughs) Election interference, right? They start trying to go after him once he's on there. I have to understand that, the, the legalities of that. But I do believe that Donald J. Trump will pardon us and he should we didn't do anything you know we're we're his supporters we went there like he asked and things went wrong that day and that's sad and that's well tough. there's no doubt they, they set us all up we were all patsies that day joe you got to come back on anytime that's you want on the cool. broadcast anytime you can get on 11 a.m to 3 p.m weekdays sundays or we can always tape we love you people should go to freejoebigs.com and donate to support your appeal. They want to grind yeah. us down. They want to break our will. Give me a, give me a, give me a, give me a 1776, brother. 1776, brother. Oh my gosh, what a dork, Adam. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, 
What oh my God. Word. Donald Trump is encouraging this, this retconning of the attack on the Capitol, the riot, the beating up of the cops as somehow this modern day 1776. And he has clearly encouraged them to believe that if he's elected, he will pardon them. He will wipe it all away. Yeah, I mean, look, remember Lauren Boebert tweeting today, that 1776 on January 6, 2021. Yeah. I know some of your listeners kind of understand the background we came from and some don't. Let me just say there is this special, as we've been talking about, this special feeling about, you know, being willing to take the government on, to take on tyranny. And that's what they're tapping into. And when you say, give me a seven, I, mean, I couldn't imagine George Washington, like, give me a 1776, brother. You know, it's like, bro. So that, like, right after the uh, you have one minute left thing, which he's got to be like, oh, that sucks. But right after that, basically, Alex Jones said, you're a patsy. You were thrown under the bus. Mm-hmm. I think we're at this moment where these supporters are willing to give Donald Trump a chance to pardon them and and they're expecting it, but they're very close to, I think, turning against him, particularly if he ends up, you know, you look at what's going on in some of these court cases, everybody's separating or what's severing from each other. They're all turning mm-hmm. on Donald Trump. This could be a real moment. I, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but mm-hmm. uh, this could be a moment where they're starting to turn against him. But if Donald Trump wins, listen, Charlie, if Donald Trump wins and anybody that thinks he is not going to win, I hope he's not going to win. I would not bet money on he's not going to win. He will pardon all these people. I fully believe it. He will pardon all of them. And he'll pardon them pretty much right away. And they may even be invited to the White House. Enrique Tarrio going right from the prison cell to the Rose Garden. You know, I was thinking about your analogy to the, the Ku Klux Klan and how big it was in the 1920s and how it faded away. The one thing that the Klan did not have back then was a president of the United States who was endorsing them and propping them up. Now, I do understand that there was a lot more sympathy, but there is something unique here. So here's, I'm sorry to do this this early in the morning, but Sarah Palin, who was for reasons that I have no idea on one of the obscure cable channels. And she was asked about all of these guys who were being sentenced to these long sentences. And she expresses concern about about the good guys, describing the people who attacked the Capitol. And, and again, you know, it, it is this disconnect. You spent a year of your life documenting what happened on January 6th, the violence, the deaths, the brutalization of the cops, the attempt to stop Congress, all of this. And in the minds of people like Sarah Palin, holding people accountable is punishing good guys for being good guys. Let's, let's just play this. It's so disheartening, the examples that you've given, Eric. Um, it oh, it makes um, the populace lose a lot of faith in our government, and that's an understatement. Um, unfortunately, what, what this leads to when we recognize the examples that you just gave, the two-tier different justice systems that, that apply according to politics, um, you know, it makes the good guy think, what's the use in being a good guy? What, we're going we're to be punished. You know, we're, we're picked on is what we are under the system. Just but we can't feel a cop. helpless and hopeless. We have to remember that we have three equal branches of government, right? And Congress has a lot to do with what's going on in the judiciary. Congress can't keep sitting back, no. especially Republicans in the majority in, in some they of these can. areas. Eric, they can't sit back and just let all of this happen because it is dismantling of 
our traditional judicial system. What the, what the fuck is she talking about? She sounds like Vivek. No, oh, like I know, just kind of like I'm going to do the circle here of garbage. You know, first of all, it's it's the whole good guys. Like, geez, what's the point of being a good guy? I mean, if you can't yeah. smash the window of the Capitol and throw feces on the <gasps> wall and tase cops and say, "Hey, take their gun and kill them with their own," if you know what kind of an America is it when you can't take an American flagpole, you know, and and use it to beat up a cop? And if you're actually arrested for that, well, then what's the point of being a good guy? And why isn't Congress stepping in to, I don't know, obstruct justice? Because I, this is the brainworm that's out there. It is brainworms. It's like, why can't you just walk through the U.S. Capitol with a Confederate flag? I don't get it, right? Like, yeah. why? America first. Yeah. Look, here's the deal. So take somebody like Sarah Palin and I, you know, I don't know if she is now Please take a, <laughs> now a victim of the brain worms or if she's just, if you become so cynical that you don't believe that, you know, we can talk about like civil war and we can talk about the rule of law and it's not actually going to happen. So I'm going to use it or, you know, right. is it that cynical or is it like they truly now believe it's tribe against tribe? I think either way is not a good answer, but like, this is the frightening thing to me is just that, like, what happens if Democrats even try to do a tenth of what Republicans did? You would have Sarah Palin on this show saying, rule of law. We have one branch that – it's that LOL, nothing matters. And this is where, again, the only advice I can give in how to defeat this – like, we can talk about it and we need to because people need to be aware of it. The mm -hmm. only advice I can give is you have to win elections. And by the way, you win elections by seeing yeah. what people care about today and going after those issues – Donald Trump cannot win again, and somebody like Vivek cannot win, or else this continues. It is, and of course, we're, we're rolling our eyes and making a little bit of fun of Sarah Palin, but the reality is that Sarah Palin is not saying anything that is fundamentally different from what the Republican nominee for president is saying. And, you know, Donald Trump is, you know, expanding his lead. Donald Trump is saying the exact same thing. In fact, even going further, demanding that Congress somehow intervene as if, and, and this is becoming now internalized here, this idea that if you are a member of Congress, then you have an obligation to come in and defund the special counsel or somehow obstruct what a jury is doing or nullify what is happening in a court of law. I mean, five minutes ago, this was completely crazy talk. And now it's really quite orthodox. I mean, I'm reading in the New York Times today where, uh, you know, the former governor of Wisconsin, who I know quite well, Scott Walker, is endorsing this idea of simply impeaching and removing the newly elected state Supreme Court justice because she won't recuse herself in a case, basically wiping out more than a million votes in his home state because she might rule against them on redistricting. And it's like, this has become kind of just a talking point. Well, of course, we remove judges we don't like. Of course, we use our power to, you know, to hammer prosecutions we don't like. And, you know, again, as I said yesterday, once you cross that line, once you begin doing it, you know, it's like taking, you know, one hit of meth. It's going to keep going and going and going. And so even sort of the normie mainstream Republicans are like, yeah, of course we have to use our legislative majorities to kneecap the courts. As a member of Congress, here's what I can tell you the pressure is. Because we dealt with this, remember, this was like the defund Obamacare, where it's like, 
you go to a town hall or you go out in the district and this one little thing. So in Wisconsin right now, it's if you're a state representative, the one thing is, are you going to impeach the justice or whatever? And that is the only thing people ask. You could say like, look, I have the most conservative voting record. I'm going to fight. They're like, yeah, but are you going to vote to impeach the justice? Yeah, exactly because I had right. a group tell me. And that pressure is so intense, you end up either having to decide I'm not going to run again or I'm going to impeach the justice. And it's like rule by mob rule. You know, I know that there was uh, there was an effort over the weekend to get some prominent Republican to speak out against this. That this is an attack on the independent judiciary. This is going too far. And I have to say, reading through the New York Times story today, not one prominent Republican is willing to say, "Okay, guys, you know, I want to win, but we need to win elections, and we just lost that election." I mean, we lost that election by 11 points in April, and you're telling me that in September we're just going to overturn it by the legislature? Now, the Democrats are pushing back. I don't know much about how this is uh, playing out, but I'm reading that they're actually going to have like a $4 million campaign just attacking this, you know, going on the air saying, look at what uh, the Republicans are doing. I mean, this is going to just backfire in their face. Okay, let's leave this to the side because there's so much else going on. All right, so other big development, special counsel Jack Smith. Warning Tuesday, the former President Trump's daily statements threatened to taint a jury pool in Washington in the criminal case. Trump's provocative comments about both Smith's team and the judge, Tanya Chutkin, who's presiding over the case, have been a central issue since the indictment was filed last month. Prosecutors have repeatedly signaled their concerns about the impact of Trump's social media posts. Tuesday's complaint from the Justice Department underscores the extent to which Trump's social media attacks are testing the patience of prosecutors and risk exposing him to sanctions from the judge. So your thoughts on this, because of course, we're all wondering, when are the judges going to say enough is enough, or is Donald Trump going to be immune from that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's no doubt there's going to be that moment where a judge has to say, this stops. I mean, Donald Trump has gotten more... I didn't even know it was possible. He's gotten more unhinged every day. It's crazy. Yes, that's true. Right. It's not a flat line. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't even think it could get worse. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, I imagine him waking up or going to sleep with bed hair, just writing these crazy things out, these crazy diatribes. And so eventually a judge is going to have to say something. And I think the question is going to be, and you know, as a not lawyer is, can they enforce that? I mean, Obviously, if it was me doing it, yeah, they could send somebody to arrest me and enforce if I violated this rule or uh, the ruling by a judge. Can they do that with the former president? Yeah, of course they can. What's going to be the reaction to that? You know, who knows? But I think at some point they have to do it or else you're basically creating a two-tier justice system in which Donald Trump can taint the jury pool with a very big megaphone that even the mafia doesn't have to be able to do that and other people can't. And we, we have to believe in a one-tier justice system here. Hey, folks, this is Charlie Sykes, host of the Bulwark podcast. We created the Bulwark to provide a platform for pro-democracy voices on the center right and the center left for people who are tired of tribalism and who value truth and vigorous yet civil debate about politics and a lot more. And every day we remind you, folks, you are not the crazy ones. So why not head over to thebulwark.com and take a look around? Every day, we produce newsletters and podcasts that will help you make sense of our politics and keep your sanity intact. To get a daily dose of sanity in your inbox, 
why not try a Bulwark Plus membership free for the next 30 days? To claim this offer, go to thebulwark.com slash charlie. That's thebulwark.com forward slash charlie. We're going to get through this together. I promise. All right, so here's another interesting story. This is from ABC News. Trump was warned that the FBI could raid Mar-a-Lago months ahead of time, his lawyer's notes show. Here's the ABC story. In May of last year, shortly after the Justice Department issued a subpoena to former President Trump for all classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate, Trump's then lead attorney on the matter, Evan Corcoran, warned the former president in person at Mar-a-Lago that not only did Trump have to fully comply with the subpoena, but that the FBI might search the estate if he did not, according to Corcoran's audio notes following the conversation. Only minutes later, during a poolside chat away from Trump, Corcoran got his own warning from another Trump attorney. If you push Trump to comply with the subpoena, he's just going to go ballistic. Uh, now, again, these are captured in a series of voice memos that he made on his phone the very next day, and everybody's got their hands on all of this. Once again, we're being reminded that Donald Trump really did think he was above the law. He really didn't think he had to comply. This is not just some inadvertent removal of documents. You have his lawyer saying, you need to comply with this. This might happen. They will come after you. And either Donald Trump just didn't believe him that they would actually execute a search warrant, or he just didn't care because he's Donald Trump. So you and I, I think, are fairly well-adjusted individuals, and put yourself in the mind of having been present in the United States with everybody, you know, tending to you and giving, and then now having to be subject to the law. It would be a little humbling. You and I would do it, but mm-hmm. now put yourself in the seat of a complete, utter, absolute, beyond even the word doesn't describe narcissist. Somebody who now has reached the highest pinnacle, literally at the top job in the world, the most powerful job in the world, got defeated, can't accept his defeat, still brings people to Mar-a-Lago to worship him, by the way. It's amazing. And now is being told that the little Justice Department and these little FBI agents are going to make him turn his stuff over. So I still kind of buy into the belief that he wasn't necessarily looking to sell it to the Saudis or anything, but it was just a pride thing. He wanted it. He wanted his papers. But I got to tell you, I have not ruled out, and I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to this, but I haven't ruled out that he wanted to hold on to it for other reasons, for more nefarious reasons, because I have no doubt that Donald Trump does not care an ounce about the United States of America. He will do good things for the U.S. if it makes him look good, and I think he'll do bad things if it makes him look good. I think the bottom line is he cares about one thing, Donald Trump. And uh, I don't mean to be overly harsh. I just believe that. I believe the guy is incapable of thinking of even, you know, of anything but his own self and his own well-being. Yeah, and he's probably sad today thinking that, you know, his BFFs, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, are meeting without him. I mean, kind of yeah, the, he's like not invited to the party. The axis of assholes, and he's just not there. Yeah. It's got to be tough yeah. for him. Okay, but given all of this, and we're, you know, we've been talking about Trump for a very long time, but Wall Street Journal poll over the weekend finding Trump with 59% of Republican voters supporting him, 59%. And he's running even with Joe Biden. He's getting crazier <sighs> and going up in the polls among Republicans, even in a crowded field. I'll first off say on the general election, again, if you're a Democrat listening to this and you get upset when we say this is a close race, 
Fine, get upset. Okay, then do not be surprised when Donald Trump wins in 2024. Now, I'm going to say, if God came down and said I had to bet on one side or the other, all of my money, I'd bet on Joe Biden right now. But I would not do that very comfortably because we have got to understand that there are real concerns out there. And, and for the Democrats, you have to address them. I, I, I see that Joe Biden is running you know, $30 million in TV ads. I think that's smart from a Biden perspective. You've got to sell your message on the economy. Yeah, on the Republican it. side, Charlie, here's the issue that I've, I've come to really understand is, you know, first off, if you had just one opponent to Donald Trump, it would be much easier right now. We have like 10 opponents to Donald Trump, even though none of them are somehow running against him, whatever. But when Donald Trump gets indicted, okay, if you're an average Republican voter and you're sitting there, this indictment comes out, you're kind of confused. And so, yeah, you'll listen to what Donald Trump has to say, but you're also watching these other Republicans and what they have to say about it in every one of them. So the people you trust, every one of them are looking at you through a television screen and saying, this is a witch hunt by the Justice Department. When person you trust after person you trust tells you that, you're going to believe it's a witch hunt from the Justice Department. And if you believe that, you're going to rally behind the guy that is being unfairly attacked. So when these Republicans sit around and they convince themselves, and I know them, and I know what they're doing with the exception of Chris Christie, Asa, and Will Hurt, and you convince yourself that I will – defend Donald Trump because eventually he's going to burn out. You are actually emboldening him and you're strengthening him because you're convincing the people that trust you. I mean, imagine people, you know, your family trust you and you're lying to them. The people that trust you, you're telling them this is a witch hunt. They believe because of you that this is a witch hunt. And of course, they're going to get behind the hunted in the witch hunt. I'm wondering what's going on inside Adam Kinzinger's mind In Liz Cheney's mind, you spent more than a year investigating who Donald Trump was, what Donald Trump did. You laid out this case to the American people in great detail. Since then, you have the Justice Department laying out how he broke the law. You have a comprehensive indictment down in Georgia accusing him of racketeering and conspiracy. And yet it seems like the overwhelming possibility that Donald Trump will be the nominee of your former party or your current party. Do you consider yourself a Republican? I don't want to like put words in your mouth. (sighs) I guess. I I mean, I I only because I'm unwilling to give up that ground, but I'm not going to vote Republican right now. All right. So how do you think about this? Because I mean, all the things that you know, that you did, that you explained to the American people, it's not a secret. There's no secret knowledge how awful Donald Trump's behavior was, what he attempted to do, the way he behaved in January. And you're sitting there watching Donald Trump surging to another nomination. So let me get deep for a second and say, you know, I knew that there would be a cost to doing this. I mean, when this started, I thought that, you know, by now people would have kind of opened their eyes and woken up. I think I underestimated the cost it would be to my family you know, those kinds of things. I would do it all again. I would be nervous, but I would do it all again. And I still sit with this belief that history will judge what we did very well. And I think, you know, Republicans of whether it's five years from now Mm -hmm. or 10 years or even 20 years from now, will look back and kind of see what Liz and I did as, you know, a really important step in what this party is now. And I believe that. And, and And I'm willing to kind of see the history of that. The other thing, when I went into politics, I remember I'd literally just come out of Iraq when I ran. 
And I remember thinking, look, if 19, 20 year olds are going to die for this country, giving up a political career is not a huge sacrifice. And I held that with me all the way to the end. So there's no like, woe is me on that. But I am blown away because I remember on January 7th or 8th, something like that, everybody was against Trump. And Fred Upton came to me and said, Trump is going to run again. And I'm like, Fred, you're insane. He always has these prophecies. We call them the Upton prophecies because he's always pretty good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never believed him. And true enough, he, he was right. You know, the party turned around. And I, I think back to Fred telling me that. And I'm like, I was naive to think that this was the end of the insanity, but it wasn't. So, yeah, it's, a, it's something I struggle with, you know, sometimes, but I have zero regrets about it. At some point, you, you don't have a choice when you look at it and you go, okay, like, what is it worth to go along? But, you know, what is amazing to me, and again, this goes back to this point about, you know, once you cross the line once, once you've taken the meth once, it, you know, becomes easier to take it. It becomes harder to go back to what you were before once you've made this bargain. But still, it is remarkable that if you think about where we were on January mm-hmm. 7th and everything we have learned since then, and you have 59% of Republicans yeah. saying, yeah, this is our guy. You know, in, in, in part, it is kind of a, you know, a big middle finger, as I've described it, a big middle, middle finger to, to the Democrats, mm-hmm. to the media, mm-hmm. to, you know, to like, yeah, we're going to stick with this guy. But it is an amazing thing. I remember the first time on the podcast that I raised the podcast, it was back in 2020 during the campaign. And I said, you know, if he loses, he, he can run in 2024. And people thought, what? Because this had never even occurred to people. Yep. And- I keep also thinking about what must be going through Ron DeSantis's mind, because you know that there were people who told the media, you know, off the record, well, okay, things are kind of bad right now. You know, our candidate yeah. completely sucks, but wait until those Georgia indictments come down, because that will turn things around. Because there was, even recently, this residual hope that something would happen that would turn the voters against them, but they weren't. But I'm mean, at this point, and let me bounce this question off you. What would have to happen right now? What would have to happen between now and next spring for Republican voters to turn against Donald Trump? What would he have to do? Would he, I mean, if he's caught beating baby whales to death with the bodies of baby seals in Fifth Avenue, that no, that would, would be, right? That would show he's a tough guy. He's if tough it turned guy. out that he'd paid for multiple abortions for his various mistresses, I once thought, like for five minutes, that that no, would, no. that's cool because he's he's got he's hooking up with a lot of girls. That's what you know. That's how they see this. Yeah. I think. Look, there's two things that I think could do it. Number one, if there is a trial. And, you know, he is shown basically being subservient to the court. The truth comes out and he's convicted. I think that is quite possible. Yes. The other thing, and this is very unlikely, is I, I, so I, I think a lot in war analogies. And so, you know, imagine you're sitting there with a platoon. You've got an objective you have to hit. And you know that everybody's got to charge the mound, right? Everybody's got to charge that objective. And one guy gets up and heroically makes a run and, of course, gets shot down. Another person makes a run and gets shot down. So everybody's looking around at each other. If finally everybody stands up and charges that, there'll be some casualties, but they'll take the objective. And I think that has to happen in the Donald Trump case where finally people just start speaking out. And I think that's probably not going to happen. Probably. And not. so I don't know. So I don't know what's going to happen, except that there's got to be, what, what is it that serial killers say? They're like, the first kill is the toughest. And then it's easier after that. It's like mm-hmm. the first time you accept a Donald Trump lie, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and probably vomit in the toilet. But after that, you know, eh, whatever, it's, it's easy. It's just who he is. Let's talk about your, your former colleagues uh, back in the house and in the Senate. Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to play a, 
an interesting role. Now we're faced with the possibility of a government shutdown by the end of the month. I think there are a lot of people that have just simply decided that it's probably going to happen, you know, despite the the impact on the economy. One of the problems, of course, is that you have these holdouts from the Freedom Caucus who are demanding spending cuts. But then Marjorie Taylor Greene appears to be demanding other things, including the impeachment of Joe Biden, maybe cutting off all aid to Ukraine as the price for her vote for any deal. And I think I told Jonathan Capehart last night, I said, you know, this is not a negotiation. This is this is a ransom demand. And she's got a hostage. You know, Kevin McCarthy is her hostage and she's going to see how far that she can push him. So there's also the dynamic where the Senate Republicans are signaling they're just going to jam Kevin McCarthy. They're going to go ahead and they're going to pass bipartisan spending bills. They're not going to go along with cutting off money for Ukraine. So so what's going to happen? I mean, it feels like, you know, we're playing chicken with, with dueling clown cars. How does it play out? We've been here before and I've been part of it. And I'll tell you, each time we approach government shutdown, you know, we all panic. I do too. I've never voted for a shutdown. I guess you don't really vote for them. You just don't vote for the things that keep it open. But you always have this group, and it's particularly of the new kind of crazies that come in every class that think a government shutdown is going to work. And it's like every new baby has to touch the stove once. And that's what's happening here. I say 90% chance the government shuts down. Now, this is different than a debt default, Mm -hmm. right? Different than a debt default. This isn't going to collapse the economy. Republicans, maybe once in history, but Republicans have never won a government shutdown. Why? Because Democrats are willing to do things like continuing resolutions. So like, let's just keep spending the money we've been spending. Republicans are always the ones putting things on the requirements And the American people are smart enough to know when the government shuts down that it's the Republicans doing it. So it may be a 20-day shutdown. It may be, particularly with the tight Republican majority, maybe a 30-day shutdown. But the Republicans will lose and they'll pay a price for it. And quite honestly, if the uh, McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate work with Democrats to pass bills and send them to the House, that will guarantee that McCarthy has to cave and uh, probably the end of McCarthy's speakership or pretty close to it. Usually I understand even stupid positions in politics, but sometimes um, stupid is beyond stupid. And then there's Tommy Tuberville. I don't want you to explain this to me. Tommy Tuberville, uh, the senator from uh, Alabama, who I've I've described as, and there's a lot of competition for this. I mean, Mm. you know, to be the dumbest member of the Senate. I mean, if Marsha Blackburn is in the Senate and, you know, it's... I have so many Blackburn stories, by the way, from the House. (laughs) Next time. Oh, man, I could spend 20 minutes, yeah. I'm going to make a note on that. (laughs) Okay. But let's talk about Tommy for a moment. He's got this hold on all of the promotions in the, the military. And you had this extraordinary episode yesterday where the three non-political, you know, heads of the armed services write an op-ed piece saying, this is disastrous. We don't have leaders now, you know, in the major branches of the military. And, you know, deep breath here. If Democrats were doing this, the Republicans would have their hair on fire. This would be, it would be treason. How dare you undercut the military? And here's the former party of national security, the Republicans, who are letting Tommy Tuberville kneecap the military at a time of rising tensions and on higher costs. Okay, leaving aside why he's doing this, because he's Tommy Tuberville and he's stupid and he's deplorable and everything. Why are Republicans letting him do this? Why is Mitch McConnell allowing him to do this? Why is Chuck Schumer allowing one freaking senator to screw over the U.S. military? I mean, how is this possibly a political winner? 
I don't know. And, and I'll tell you, I, so I've always been kind of against this, like, let's change the rules of the Senate argument. Cause I'm like, well, there's then the other side's going to be in, but I've come around on some of it, like whether it's spending bills in the Senate, you know, we need to get past the filibuster rules or whether it's something like this, the fact that one person out of a hundred, I mean, literally you could have liked Bozo the clown. He's not like yeah. prevented from running and you could put him in the Senate. You could, you know, elect an avowed Nazi literally and put him in the Senate and they have the power to stop this. I think that has to change. And I'll tell you like the fact that there are people that are unwilling to speak out on this or that are going along with it, the Republican Party, and I'm saying this as a military member, the Republican Party has always gone after the Democrats for politicizing the military. And I'll tell you, to an extent, yeah. there's some of it. Like, you know, when you have a Democratic mm-hmm. administration, sure. the number of times you have to sit at the computer and do social justice issues, kind of CBTs, it increases. But we're still very effective at killing the enemy. Now, the Republicans, I think, have no right to claim that against the Democrats because they have taken what should be an institution with bipartisan support and try to jam their social issues into it and use that as the vehicle they can control for things like abortion and everything else. They are politicizing the last vestige of government that has bipartisan support. And honestly, Charlie, this worries me more than anything that has ever happened in this government is the politicization of the military, because that has always been the confident backstop. We knew on January 6th that no matter how bad it got, at least there was a military that in the worst case scenario could come in and fix it. If you start wondering that the military is on a political side, one or the other, and that's not even an option, that's when citizens ultimately end up taking up arms and things turn really violent. Okay, so I genuinely do not understand this part, though. Why don't Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer say, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to have an up or down vote on this. We're just going to bring this to the floor and, you know, screw Tommy Tumberville. Because my guess is that it would be like 93, 94 votes to confirm each and every one of these. So why don't they do that? That's an answer for a senator because I simply don't know. I mean – I would bring it to the floor. I I would have him debate it out. I would make him, you know, this idea of like filibuster without actually filibustering, you just declare your intent to filibuster and then you have to go to a cloture vote. I would make Tommy Tuberville actually go onto the floor and filibuster, like, and speak until he pees his pants. And then pound him, pound him. Yeah. This is a nightmare scenario, I I would think, that that he's going up against, you know, the heads of all of these armed services, you know, having flag officers telling him the consequences of this, you know, for a Republican to do this is just extraordinary. Yep, so absolutely. Okay, I'm, I'm probably going to get ratioed on, on all of this, but I was going through <laughs> social media this morning, seriously, and I scrolled past a video of Chuck Schumer speaking on the floor of the Senate about something or other, okay? And I'm thinking, wow, wait, but I haven't seen him in like, where has he been? Yeah. We see Mitch McConnell all the time. It's like, Chuck Schumer is the majority leader of the United States Senate. They control the Senate. And yet, where is this guy? I do worry that the Democrats just think they're going to win all these things by default. It's funny you say that because you mentioned (laughs) it and I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I haven't seen him either. McConnell's gotten a lot of attention, obviously, with his freeze-ups lately, yeah, but, you know. Not the great attention. No. Well, what's the thing that you say? Like, what's the most dangerous places between a camera and Chuck Schumer? And now, all of a sudden, he's quiet. Like, the Democrats, look, I don't agree with Democrat economic policy, but I think they have a lot to brag about. They need to be out there bragging and talking and bragging and talking because uh, they're losing that fight right now. So, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know where he's been. 
Okay, so let's talk uh, in the minutes we have left about Ukraine. You have been very, very outspoken about all of this. Mm. There's been this uh, three-day operation by the Ukrainians, uh, but there are doubts about the success of the counteroffensive. And I feel like we've been having this debate every single week since this war began. What should we be doing for them? Are we doing enough? Are we giving them what they need? And was it fast enough? And I guess I, you know, think back and I've heard, you know, both sides of this and you got a lot of flack for talking about a no-fly zone, but it seems to me, and you tell me because this is in your wheelhouse, it seems naive to expect that a modern army can mount an offensive or a counteroffensive without air superiority. And there has been this tremendous reluctance to give them air power. What do you think? Right. So, Charlie, here's two things that annoy me. You know, these anonymous leaks from the Pentagon that have said that the Ukrainians are too casualty averse, right? Look, we left Afghanistan because we were losing like a guy a month. I don't mean to like denigrate that loss. That's very serious loss. But if you're going to say the Ukrainians are casualty averse because they're losing hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, charging a trench like in World War One, and they don't have air power, we trained them in combined arms, you know, maneuvers, which exactly. includes air power. We, mm-hmm. we refuse to teach them about how to get through, you know, landmines because we haven't dealt with landmines in so long. Look, here's the deal. Every time, and these early conversations on the bulwark, I remember you'd, you'd have a few people mm-hmm. even arguing with what you were saying when you were like, right. we got to give them this stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. look, everything that at one point we said we have to give Ukraine, we ultimately end up giving it to them, and we end up mm-hmm. giving it to them late. Imagine if at the very beginning, I think the Biden administration finally now understands that Russia's not going to nuke us. They're not going to use nukes. I think they understand that now. Imagine if we could go back a year and they were operating F-16s now. They had Abrams. They were using ATACMs. The military tries to play like we have a limited number of ATACMs. We do have a limited number of ATACMs. We also have a missile that is being produced to replace that. These things are going to be destroyed because they're getting old and we're scared to give them away. Mm. They need to step up and say, get this done. I've come around to believe that it's not really necessarily the Biden administration that's being slow on this. I think it's the Pentagon, but I think the Biden administration doesn't know how to push back on the Pentagon. The Pentagon are being counters. Their job is to make sure we have enough ammunition and every possible theater of war to win. I get it. Politicians have to come in and say, we're willing to take a risk. And the risk is we have a chance to defeat one of the greatest enemies of the United States without firing a shot from our own guns. And we're going to take that risk and do it. And that's where we're at right now. So you have a book coming out this fall, Renegade, My Life in Faith, The Military and Defending America from Trump's Attack on Democracy. So Adam, when are we going to see this thing? It's coming out October 17th. I'm doing the audio book as we speak. Well, not like right now, but this week. And uh, that's a tough process. But yeah, I'll be putting, uh, I'll be posting something in a day or two about pre-orders. So pre-orders are very helpful, but definitely I think you guys will like it. And it's a big, a good, a good view. I am looking forward to it. Adam Kinzinger, former congressman from Illinois, member of the January 6th committee. Thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast. You bet. Anytime. And thank you all for listening. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again with a new episode of The Trump Trials. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper and engineered and edited by Jason Brown.